This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hey folks, I know you love podcasts. Believe it or not, there are a lot of people out there who still haven't been turned on to podcasts or don't really know what a podcast is. So help celebrate Podcast Month by sharing Kick-Ass News or any of your favorite podcasts with at least two friends. Or better yet, share us with all your friends on Twitter or Facebook and be sure to tag us when you do and use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. Spread the word about this podcast or any podcast. And if you want to do something else to support Kick-Ass News, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com slash kickassnews. Believe it or not, this show costs actual money, and your contribution will help offset some of those costs. So become a part of what I'm doing here by going to GoFundMe.com slash kickassnews and making a donation. Thanks for listening. And now, enjoy the podcast. I've done a lot of bad things in my time. Why was it awful? There's oil underneath this ground, and I intend to get it out. It's up to people like us to set the example. Because if we don't, this whole civilization slides backward. You say slide backward? I say reverts to its natural state. I was born on the same day. Is the Republic of Texas. Here's the family, home, and the most bountiful place on God's green earth. God bless Texas. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick Ass News. That was a preview of the new AMC series, The Sun, which premieres this Saturday, April 8th at 8 9 Central. Based on the New York Times bestseller and Pulitzer Prize-nominated novel, The Sun is a sweeping family saga that spans 150 years and three generations of the McCullough family. The 10-episode drama traces the story of Eli McCullough, played by Pierce Brosnan, as he transforms from good-natured innocence to calculated violence and loses everything on the wild frontier setting him on the path to building a ranching and oil dynasty of unsurpassed wealth and privilege. The Sun deftly explores how Eli's ruthlessness and quest for power triggers consequences that span generations as the McCulloughs rise to become one of the richest families reigning in Texas. Today I'm talking with the executive producers of the series, Kevin Murphy, who serves as the showrunner on The Sun, and Philip Meyer, the acclaimed author of The Sun and creator of this epic television drama. Philip Meyer spent five years writing and researching the book The Sun, and then spent another five years adapting it for television. This acclaimed American novelist is a Guggenheim Fellow and one of the New Yorker's 20 Best Writers Under 40, whose work is regularly compared to Cormac McCarthy, John Steinbeck, and William Faulkner. During his fellowship at the Michener Center for Writers in Austin, Texas, Philip Meyer wrote his first novel, American Rust, which went on to win the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and was named to numerous Best Book of the Year lists. American Rust was the first in what he envisions as a trilogy of novels about the creation of the American myth. He followed it up with the second novel in that trilogy, The Sun, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Literature and a bestseller in eight countries. Helping him adapt The Sun to television is writer and producer Kevin Murphy. 
who served as head writer on Desperate Housewives, for which he received two Writers Guild Award nominations, an Emmy nomination, and a Golden Globe Award. He worked as a writer and producer on shows like Ed, Reaper, and Caprica, and was the co-creator and showrunner on Defiance, Valentine, Hellcats, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He's also an accomplished writer, composer, lyricist, and producer in the theater, receiving Drama Desk nominations for his musical productions of Heathers and Reefer Madness. Later, he co-adapted Reefer Madness into a Showtime original film, earning him an Emmy Award for Outstanding Music and Lyrics. Today, Kevin and Philip will talk about the long process of bringing the epic novel The Sun to the screen and how the story of Texas fits into the mythology of America. We'll discuss the frontier spirit that led larger-than-life Texans to risk everything, first in the cattle business and then in the oil boom, how none of them struck it rich without getting a little blood on their hands, and how some of those men inspired the characters in Philip Meyer's novel. We'll also talk about what The Sun has to say about race relations in America. We'll revisit the oft-forgotten chapter in Texas history known as The Bandit Wars, and Philip Meyer talks about researching Native American life and drinking buffalo blood. Coming up with Philip Meyer and Kevin Murphy in just a moment. Today I'm talking with the author of The Sun, Philip Meyer, and the show's executive producer and showrunner of the new AMC series based on the book, Kevin Murphy. Guys, thanks for sitting down with me. Yeah, it's a pleasure having us. First, before we even get into it, I just want to ask you, Philip, because I had Bradley Birkenfeld on the show a couple of weeks ago, who's the guy who blew the whistle on the UBS Switzerland scandal. <laughs> so I have to ask, uh-huh. I didn't realize this, but... Before you became a writer, you were a derivatives trader with UBS Switzerland, and you described it as, quote, a soul-crushing experience. Yeah, I mean, I, so I grew up in a kind of a working-class neighborhood in Baltimore and uh, dropped out of high school and was a general delinquent. Um, and by the time I, I got to college in my mid-20s, I, I knew that I didn't want to be poor. You know, my parents, you know, bohemians, and we'd always struggled. And so I thought, okay, even though I was an English major and I was, was already writing uh, novels, I thought, well, somehow I need to make money. I will get a job on Wall Street and I will be free. But it turned out to be, uh, yeah, pretty soul-crushing experience. I mean, I'm still friends with guys from, from that time. Oh, yeah. Know? And, of course, uh, you know, when that, that UBS revelation happened, it was, big, it was big news for the company and, you know, there's some shakeups. But, uh, yeah. yeah. You think uh, that might make it into a novel one day? You know, I think Michael Lewis covers that stuff so well yeah, that you sort of have to know, book. you know, that's his natural subject matter. And, yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of like a literary guy. And so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that guy's an interesting yeah. story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, with your last novel, American Rust, to some extent, you were coming from a place that you knew. Right. You, we that's were right. just talking about that because you grew up in a neighborhood of Baltimore that had been hit hard by unemployment and the yeah. loss of blue collar jobs. With The Sun, what was it that you related to or drew on in this novel? So, yeah, with The Sun, I'd moved to Texas for graduate school. And um, something about the state caught me right away. Even though I was from Baltimore and I'd lived in the Northeast, uh, New York City and Boston and rural New York State. 
so I, I'd never I'd never been to Texas before graduate school, but something is it's a very charismatic state and it kind of gets inside you. And, and I had a sense that there was something very important about the kind of history of the state and the type of people who live there and who lived there in the past that was crucial to understanding who we are as a, as a country now, like what we came from, uh, what our kind of national stories or, or myths come from. So it, it really was one of these things in which I had no intention of writing a book about Texas at all. And then once I'd been there for a while, I knew that uh, the second book, which ended up being The Sun, was, was gonna be about this big Texas family. You say that you view American Rust and The Sun as part of a trilogy of novels that explore the creation myth of America. Yeah. Now, I grew up in Texas, probably, I imagine, not too far from where you shot the show. Yeah. And if you ask most Texans, they probably tell you they're barely a part of the U.S. I mean, <laughs> there, there is this sense that Texas is still a little bit of its own country. Hell, the governor every couple of years Talks starts throwing it. around secession. <laughs> of course, of course. Of so course. for yeah. you and also, you know, from your perspective, Kevin, what does Texas represent about the American mythology? I mean, it's, it's like rugged individualism, total self-reliance, this idea of, you know, coming from nothing and lifting yourself up by, by your bootstraps. Um, I mean, it's, it's the entire, it's sort of half, it, it really embodies the American dream. This idea that it doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter, you know, if you're, you can come from a nothing family and become very wealthy. All these big oil dynasties were built by people who were quite poor to begin with. Um, you know, this, this is such, and, and with Texas, that narrative of going from total poverty and living in East Texas to, to massive wealth, it gets repeated again and again. It actually, is, it actually is, is a real thing. I mean, all these mm -hmm. oil families in Texas, they haven't been rich that long. Well, that's also, that's the story of Giant. Yeah, well, know, exactly. Reinventing themselves yeah, yeah, in right. a similar way from cattle barons to oil barons. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Kevin? What do you, what do you see that's attractive or that's interesting in terms of the American story? It's a place where there's a lot of cultural divides. And I think that's mm -hmm. something that historically we look at because there's an intersection of various plains, uh, plains tribes, uh, your your people of Spanish descent who later became Mexican, and and your Tejano farmers, your white people who came out here uh, after the after the Civil War, looking to looking to looking to strike it rich, and all of these and all of these different cultures. Uh, kind of exploded and because everybody wanted the same piece of land and the best bits of land for themselves and for their families. And that's the story of America. And that's the story of everything that uh, everybody who's ever made a fortune in America has done it on the backs of someone else. And whether you're a slave owner who was making it because you had free labor, whether you were, you know, Sp Spanish and you were and you were using the the natives as, as as your slave labor, whether you were using w workers that are exploited, those cultural divides um, <clears throat> are a really big part of who we are as a country. And that's something that I think, if you look at Texas, it comes across sharper. And I think the fact that Texas is kind of made that work and come through on the other side, that's part of what has made the idea of being a Texan a very insular and very uh, sexy thing for a Texan. Mm -hmm. Because they because they feel that we, we've we really kind of been through the wars together yeah. in, in, a, in a wonderful way. It's actually, this is my first experience uh, working in Texas and I, I, really, uh, I really, oh, really loved it. Yeah. 
Oh, okay. Well, that tax credit's pretty nice. Right to, <laughs> right to work state and all that. <laughs> you know, the, the tax credit is awesome, but it was the right place to shoot the show. Yeah. It's, it, it, the people were right. I think the resources that we had, the land was right. The way the light behaved was mm-hmm. right. It, it just, it, I cannot imagine having shot this anywhere else and having the show look and feel as right as it does. Yeah. And I'm curious, where exactly in Texas is it filmed? Mostly central. So, um, okay. We were, the production office was based in Austin okay. and uh, sort of shot into the hill country, uh, west, northwest, okay. uh, uh, and southwest. And then we shot some of the stuff um, to the east when we needed stuff that was greener, especially mm-hmm. some of the early Comanche stuff. We shot to the east toward Bastrop, okay. where you just have a different landscape and a different, uh, it was like a different tonal values. Yeah. I mean, really sort of an earlier, lusher time. So. Yeah, because I was curious, because in the novel, I believe it takes place in South Texas, right? The the ranch is in Southwest Texas, Dimmon South, County. Okay. Um, and well, then... I'm before, from around Houston, Southwest Houston, Richmond, Rosenberg, Fort Bend County, oh, so, originally, so, so I was trying yeah, to I mean, that area was it there. A, it, a bit it's the novel not nearly there. as pretty, let's just yeah, say. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, the whole country. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. not. I thought, and yeah. I, thought, I, I thought that the architecture I recognized uh, from somewhere where, maybe Fredericksburg, New Braunfels, yeah, yeah, somewhere yeah, sure. in the whole I mean, country there. A lot of the yeah. Comanche stuff takes place. I mean, Fredericksburg existed when the book takes place. So, oh, really? Yeah. Yep. So oh, wow. it takes the Comanche stuff's in the hill country and up to the Panhandle because that was the Comanche range. Okay. So and we, we we actually had to travel a bit for the Garcia House. Oh, to yeah. Get that, to get that uh, that sort of castle mission. Yeah, mm-hmm. Spanish architecture. Yeah, yeah. So that was in San Antonio because that doesn't really exist where we were shooting. So yeah, we had, we had to go much closer to San Antonio to get that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, and it's set during a particularly interesting moment in Texas history around 1915, which is about 25 years after kind of the last of the Indian Wars, 15 years after Spindletop, yep. when Texas is really just beginning to come into its own. What interested you about that particular moment in Texas history? Well, so it, it's this thing you're talking about. Um, it is a turning point. If you, it is the, um, uh, on one hand, you have the beginning of the modern age. So Spindletop is where human beings realize how much oil there is on Earth. In mm-hmm. fact, before Spindletop, uh, you know, the Rockefellers made their fortune on oil, but oil was used for, for you know, lubricating bike chains and gears, and, you know, they, people would burn it a bit for light. Right. But no one understood there was enough to actually burn as a fuel. Mm-hmm. And Spindletop, which happens in Texas, is the first time the world realizes, oh, we can. there's so much of this stuff under the ground, and it's so lightweight and stable, we can use it to power very lightweight vehicles comparatively. And so within mm-hmm. eight years, you have the airplane, right? Yeah. Within uh, 10 years, you have, you know, the Model T, you have commonly yeah. available mass transportation. You have cars, trucks, airplanes. Uh, within 15 years, all the navies of the world had converted from coal to oil, even though it was much, uh, it was regionally more difficult to get, especially for the English. And so this point in Texas history is when the oil business is really beginning to take off. Uh, but it's also when you, there's something which, which uh, the politically incorrect term is, or the bandit wars, it was a right. very violent period along the Mexican border in which... Um, you know, frankly, this is like one of the echoes of the book in the show to now, the, the, there is a massive instability. Uh, probably about 5,000 Mexican-Americans were killed by Anglo vigilantes and ranchers. Um, this is a thing that 
led to the dissolution or the near dissolution of the Texas Rangers uh, 1918, 1919 because of all the atrocities they committed uh, with, against the Mexican Americans. And this is a time that the Texas legislature actually sealed up all state records of, of this kind of bandit war in quotes until about, uh, I think in 1976, they decided really? to release because the Rangers and other state, you know, the other police forces had massacred so many innocent people. And you had um, one guy, McNally, who I think had, he, he sort of personally killed about 200 Mexican-Americans. Wow. Um, and they were all, in quote, shot trying to escape. That, so. that makes sense now because I was going to say, you know, growing up in Texas, we actually had a semester of Texas history in high school or junior high. And I don't remember much about the yeah. bandit war or the border wars. There would be nothing. in the, So now yeah. we've begun to accept it. Um, you know, the, the Bob Bullock history museum. books are written by the winners, right? Exactly. And, 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 and times do change. So, yeah. so th there was, uh, th just in, in, in early 2016, the whole first floor of the, the Bullock history museum in Austin mm -hmm. was devoted to the, the, the bandit wars and quotes, but that was called the hour of blood. Uh, but that, mm -hmm. which is the common Mexican American Tejano name for it. Okay. And, uh, that, 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 that Bullock uh, uh, Museum thing was kind of the first time that the, the bandit wars or the hour of blood was talked about from the Tejano perspective. Wow. So a hundred years later, <laughs> we can talk about the truth. Yeah. And was this around the, about the same time as Pancho Villa? It was about, so, yeah. so Villa yeah. is, is Villa and Villa's. And that was more in New Mexico, I guess, right? In, in Texas but, but in and Texas New Mexico. Yeah. yeah. So, so Villa and the U.S. going to war against Villa is 1916, right? Okay. So that's right. when, right. you know, that's the Persian expedition. And that's when we roll down there. And Villa, of course, had been yeah. around for five years before that. Boy, you know, we think that we have border problems right now. It, 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 the, the truth <laughs> I is, I don't think Donald Trump has any idea what a border problem is. It's one of the interesting things about this area because the South Texas area between the Rio Grande and the Nueces River, um, there was never a firm agreement because in 1836, I think Santa Ana yeah. had to say, okay, this is the border, is the Rio Grande, but Mexico for many years didn't recognize this, which is what the, the Mexican-American War was about. Mm -hmm. And when Polk kind of took Mexico, it's like, right. well, it is the Rio Grande River, and also let's also take you know New Mexico and California and uh, and everything else that they yeah. took from Mexico. It's probably about half the country. There were a lot of Mexicans that believed that was an illegitimate grab, uh, mm -hmm. land grab, and they wanted that back. And that was and that that was that was some of the underpinnings of why the bandits were coming over were coming over the border because they yeah. were looking. Their hope was to uh, incite a race war that would ultimately drive out the Anglo Americans from Texas. Right. It was a bad plan, but yeah, and also I guess this is also around the time that I forget the name of it, but that the Germans had sent a telegram yeah, the saying that the they would aid Mexico in a war with America. Exactly. So that yeah. probably emboldened Mexicans even more to try and reclaim some territory. And, and probably yeah. Zim the Zimmerman telegram was used by Anglo vigilantes against Tejanos and right. Americans more than anything. Right. Well, of course, it was completely silly. Germany was in was engaged in a massive war <laughs> with, yeah. against France. Yeah. There was no way they're going to send troops to fight on the Mexican border. But yeah. there was a point um, in which, you know, Mexican army troops, they have about a division amassed outside Nuevo Laredo. So in theory, they actually could have crossed into Laredo sometime in 1916-17. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back to talk more with Philip Meyer and Kevin Murphy of AMC's The Sun when we come back in just a moment. You know, folks, I'm not exactly a gourmet cook, but one thing I've come to realize is not all ingredients are created equal. 
fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Thankfully, for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers delicious, quality food, courtesy of over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. right to your door, supporting a more sustainable food system and setting the highest standards for ingredients. Plus, with Blue Apron's freshness guarantee, you can be sure that every ingredient in your delivery will arrive ready to cook or they'll make it right. It's no wonder that they're the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. I've become a huge fan of Blue Apron. It's easy to prepare, it's delicious, and it's always something new. Like just this past weekend, we made their Top Chef spice-rubbed pork with sweet red onion and black beans. Man, oh man, was it good. And some of the meals I'm looking forward to in April include spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salada, sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot, and ginger fried rice, parmesan-crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli, and baby broccoli and fontina paninis with hard-boiled egg and arugula salad. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com kick. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com kick. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And now, back to the podcast. While we're on the subject of Texas history, throughout the history of the state you have so many of these larger than life figures sam houston mm-hmm. uh davy crockett all the way through you know t boone pickens and bum sure. phillips yeah. <laughs> did any of these real life men make their way into the character of eli mccullough the, the biggest one is probably charles goodnight mm-hmm. um and yeah. you know who's he, he never became quite as successful as the mcculloughs and never had any kind of family dynasty but when I looked for a model, I was like, okay, could a man who grew up in combat and basically was, was in war from about age 10 till, uh, you know, he was about 90 years old, could this guy actually live a full life and what was he like and what were his skills like? And uh, so mm-hmm. Goodnight was a very loose, loose model in terms of like, are you making this up completely, Meyer? Are you an insane person? <laughs> or are you writing a character who could have lived? Yeah. Uh, so Goodnight was probably what ticked that box. And I said, okay, this is real. Yeah. And you originally envisioned a very different book before you sat down to write it. You were going to set it in modern day Texas. Yeah. I, I heard that you were going to have a lot more characters. Yeah, there perhaps. were like 10 characters. Yeah. yeah. How, how did the novel evolve into such a different book? Well, I, I think that I'm a very inefficient writer so i work very hard but very <laughs> efficiently and uh i i realized that the book that i was trying to write after about two years of working on the book was um it was sort of a polemic it was philip meyer uh-huh. spews bs about what he thinks about america <laughs> and texas and uh so one by one i killed those characters off until i was left with genie and pete uh mm-hmm. who were characters in the show as well and uh, I realized, oh, okay, God, this guy Eli is going to have. It's kind of, in fact, going to be the central character of the book. Um, he, at that time, he was just a legendary relative who was talked about, you know, sort of off screen. Um, 
And I also knew that it was quite a depressing realization because I realized, oh my God, the book's going to take another three years to write. And I was just basically <laughs> out of money. So that's that's when all the Comanche research started, and that's when mm-hmm. all the kind of really historical stuff started. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I wonder, does the television series open up opportunities to maybe bring some of those characters back into the narrative as we it does. You know, play mean, with a broader universe and AMC's, hopefully go into a second season? Yeah, AMC's super behind the concept of the, you know this will be a broad show that eventually will take place over 150 years. Oh, wow. And um, so there's tons of stuff that was left out of the book. That Both will, timelines will continue moving forward from season to season. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. <clears throat> so okay. 1849 will give way to the 1850s and the Civil War uh-huh. and continue uh-huh. on. 1915 will give way to the 20s and the 30s, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. And eventually come up to the modern day, basically, as, as the book Really? Goes. Yeah. And, and that's, oh, wow. they bought onto that concept from, from the beginning. Uh, okay. So... We're all, you know, all of us, Kevin and I, okay. and um, the network, we're all trying to do, you know, pretty big, ambitious yeah. project here. This is, and this is just okay. the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So at a certain point, we're departing from the original source material. I mean, we, we, yeah, we can't give anything away, but we, right. we, you know, after season one, we have the same interview. We can talk about the ways in which we <laughs> departed because, okay. um, yeah, we're, 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 when we can use the book, we use it, but it's, it's mm-hmm. absolutely just a sort of interesting guide. And the point is to tell a good story. Yeah. There, there, was, there was one fundamental change that was, yeah. that was made from the book that uh, okay. kind of throws a hand grenade into a lot of it, which is moving the character of Jeannie mm-hmm. up one generation. Mm-hmm. Because in right. the book, she's the great-granddaughter of yeah. Eli. They don't really yeah. have a meaningful relationship because of the age difference. Yeah. And that's changed. And that was... Uh, and I, I just... Shout out to our very smart uh, staff writer Dan Connolly, who, yeah, uh, yeah. who who basically made that suggestion and criticized the original script in his job interview. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think in the end we'll basically just be there, there's stuff that um, it, it, that stuff it, when we get to Jeannie's life once uh-huh. you know presumably we get enough seasons once Pierce yeah. disappears and the shim becomes about Jeannie, we'll just instead of the, the the show taking place if it tracked the book exactly in the 50s and 70s and 90s it'll be yeah. in the 30s and 50s and okay. 70s so um is it safe to assume that season one will probably conclude where the book concludes or can we not say we can't say okay fair enough fair <laughs> enough fierce never hurts to ask though <laughs> i think i think what we can yeah. say is the 1915 storyline in season one takes place with the same cast and it's mm-hmm. over a relatively compressed span of time. Okay. There's, there's some effort okay. of unity of time, place and action <laughs> that it's, it, it yeah. all takes place within a few months. And yeah. we can also say that, um, you know, there's the, it, where, the, where the, where we depart most from the book, um, in the first season is in that 1915 storyline. Okay. In terms of plot events. Yeah. So, 1849 yeah. actually, uh, there's some different events, but it largely used mm-hmm. used to events in the book. Yeah, and Kevin, you've done such a diverse body of work over the years. I remember first seeing Reefer Madness off Broadway. <laughs> you've done Desperate Housewives, sci-fi, musicals, you know, animated, family shows. Um, what attracted you to The Sun? And were you at all reticent about the responsibility and the restrictiveness, perhaps, of basing a series on a pre-existing work? In, in fact, it's a pretty well-known and well-liked pre-existing work. Well, it, it was the, the person who who brought me into the project, uh, and this is after you know Philip had you know been been working working on developing the the script mm-hmm. for a couple of years before I showed up. Is uh, is, is Jenna Santioni from Sonar, uh, and I had worked together on a development project uh, a few years ago, and we had a great time working together, and we had been always looking for something else to do. So she called me, and she asked me to. Uh, 
read the book and read uh, and, and read the script. And I read the script, and I thought the script was solid. And I loved the 1849 stuff. The 1915 stuff was a little. Well, I liked it, <laughs> but then I read the book, uh-huh. and the book just blew my mind. Yeah. And something that I've always wanted to do, do is 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 look at. Uh, cultural divides and that's something that you know I, I did a, I did a science fiction show for sci-fi like a couple of years ago and it was very much about the American pelting, uh, melting pot mm-hmm. uh, as viewed through an alien science fiction lens and that was and, and, and a lot of there's a lot of historical stuff and stuff we did and just reading this book and seeing the script I, I, I was this is exactly what I what I want to be doing and the offer which was to do a secondary development process like they had a script but they were not ready to green light it so it was hiring writers coming in, partnering, partnering with Philip to sort of like solve the problems of the, of the original script, solve the problems of the original, you know, of the arc for the season and kind of figure out yeah, something. We, we actually had a five season arc. I mean, we, we okay. yeah, I mean, so we, we'd worked, the other creators of the show and I had worked for three years with Sonar and two and a half years with AMC. So we had broken, they knew what they wanted. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? By the time we got Kevin, they, we, yeah. We knew what the first season was going to be. We even knew what the second season was probably going to be. We knew where it was going to land. So, yeah. um, you know, there were there are a lot of things we changed. But but basically, when AMC said, okay, you know, we're going to gre- write a couple more scripts. We're going to greenlight you mm-hmm. in three months. By that time, we we, we the th- the beast was already born. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? The, the, the network knew what they wanted. Yeah. So, yeah. And one of the most interesting character dynamics in the book and in the show is there's this interesting push and pull between the father Eli McCullough and his son Peter McCullough, because it's not what I would expect. In that, it's the father who's the risk taker, the father who wants to get out of the family business and completely change everything, mm-hmm. and it's the son who's the cautious one who doesn't want to put all of his eggs into one basket and build an oil well. Well, see, so, so yeah, some of this is is nature versus nurture. Some of this is just you know people are just some people are bigger risk takers than others. But a mm-hmm. lot of it, when you study history, and you look at like you know the sort of the 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 the, the sons and daughters of great men in mm-hmm. quotes, they're always very different from their parents. It's very rare mm-hmm. that you get a kind of like dominant historical figure whose offspring are anything like him or her. Yeah. Um, what what you usually get is the son or the daughter. I mean, look, at we all react against our own parents, right? Always, mm-hmm. right? And, and so it doesn't matter whether you're from a powerful family, you're, you're going to do this as well. Um, and also mechanically, just from a pure storytelling point of view, uh, both in the book and in the show, you need a kind of a, a person who's a lens uh, to the kind of the opposition viewpoint, right? Mm-hmm. You need to see Eli as this historical figure. And again, of course, in the show, it's Pierce Brosnan. It's a person you fall in love with right away, no, no matter what he does. Mm-hmm. We, we need a person who's making the sort of counter argument. Well, wait a second. What you're talking about here is killing a huge number of people for some small material gain or whatever it was, which mm-hmm. is most of the history of our early country. For right. Us, you know? um, right. So it's less that he's impetuous and taking risky moves than he's closer to the original kind of frontier spirit of Texas. Absolutely. Yeah. And the son, it seems, is wanting to kind of be more of a part of the American Texas where there are laws and, and rules. Part of and, the 20th century. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing, yeah. of course, we did in the, in the, in the show um, and, and again in the book. It, it, this idea of, you know, who actually are we as Americans? Mm-hmm. Are we a nation of 
laws? Do all the law, do the laws apply to minorities just as well as much as they do mm-hmm. to white folks? Um, or are we a, a country in which might makes right? You yeah. know? And Eli's mm-hmm. point of view on the world is might makes right. And, yeah. if, and if you don't use force against other people, they will use it against you. If you yeah. don't use power against other people, they'll use power against you. Whereas Pete is the sort of optimist and the humanist, and his, his view is, you know, we're trying to build a civilization here, and people mm-hmm. like us, who are the powerful people and the wealthy people, have the greatest responsibility. Yeah. Um, so we have to oh. use our power essentially for good and to set the example. Um, and Eli's like, well, no, we're going to use our power to get even yeah. more power. Because for, for Eli, it's like life is a natural sequence of warlike events. Yeah. And yeah. that's yep. always been his life. Yep. And Pete has grown up in a time of relative, he's had a long string of relative kind of peace and prosperity mm-hmm. and Pete feels after traumatic events of his of, of, of his very young life he feels that he's going to leave a peaceful more uh, safer world for his kids yeah. and yep. Eli's like no this has just been a lull yeah. Yeah. and it turns out that yeah. Eli is right <laughs> yeah. and it brings up an interesting topic because our modern society tends to be so hypercritical of the robber barons of the turn of the 20th century <clears throat> and of settlers treatment of Native Americans both in the novel and the series it's a lot less judgy than I'm used to seeing in popular culture we, I mean, this is we really try to Jeez, yeah. Man. yeah you got to you have to tell the truth even if the truth conflicts with all the stuff you learned as a kid you know? yeah. and the truth is actually much less judgy than mm-hmm. what we learned, whether well, in Dances with Wolves or whatever. One of the things that we've really tried to do, um, and hopefully we've succeeded to a degree, is to really give a fair hearing to all of the different points of views. And this is where you go back mm-hmm. into like you know multiculturalism and writing about a cultural divide, that we have characters who are members of the Law and Order League, um, which is basically a transitional form of, of what would become the Klan in, in, in a yeah. few years down the line. And, you know... I certainly don't cheer for the Law and Order League. I don't cheer for Niles Gilbert, but I feel that he deserves to have his day in court to mm-hmm. explain the e- economic disenfranchisement that he feels and his people feel and why they feel the way that they do. Uh, you know, you get a Tonkawa perspective on the Comanche to match the Comanche perspective on the Takawa. You get you know, you know, they do hard, the Comanche do terrible, terrible things to the buffalo hunters, but you also understand that from the Comanche perspective, they are killing buffalo, destroying the, the, the food supply, and leaving meat to rot in the sun because they only take the hides. And that is a, is a horrible yeah. crime from the Comanche perspective. And, and, and trying to really, because I think if, if the show, if there's any good the show can do, it's helping to spark plug conversations about where our differences are and how we can come back together. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about, about the book and, and, yeah. you know, and, and we've kept in the show is Eli sees his mother raped and killed. He sees his sister killed. He sees his brother killed. He's taken as a, as a slave and he's savaged. And still, he manages to find a, a family in, in, this, in, in this group of Comanche. And that's really historically accurate. Cynthia Ann Parker, there's so many captive narratives that mm-hmm. that actually happened, that if you yeah. were of European descent and you survived that first year, usually you really loved be, being, being with, the native, with the native tribe. And, and I think that's yeah. a, at a time when not a lot of people are feeling hopeful, I think there is a, 
there is a message of hope and optimism in the DNA of the show that it's, I think is really yeah. worth having. It's been a lot yeah. worse than this, people. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. Thank, yeah, yeah. Thank God. And you know, I'm sure you're tired, Philip, of people asking you questions about your research on the book. Gosh, you put a lot of research into the Indian aspect of it and the yeah. traditions, and you studied bow hunting yeah. and uh, learned how to tan a deer hide, and of course. You learned how to kill a buffalo and drink its blood. Right. Two questions. <laughs> what does buffalo blood taste like? And before he came on the show, did you make Kevin drink buffalo blood too? Yeah, that was a. it was actually a, in order for anyone to get a job on the sun, they have to drink a cup yeah. of buffalo blood. Kevin took down two, so we knew he was going to be a good leader. Um, the buffalo blood, <laughs> to answer okay. your question somewhat seriously, uh, it, it, it's, it's very metallic. Um, irony, yeah. a, a irony, but the, what the dominant taste is sort of a salty, musky taste. So if you can imagine what the, what a zoo or the kind of monkey house in a zoo mm -hmm. smells like, imagine drinking that, <laughs> and that's that's what it's like. Lovely. It's very yeah. It was a low point. Yeah. Uh, third book in the trilogy in the works. Um, the third book, um, the, third, the book I'm working on right now, uh, if we ever get time away from the sun, is not. It's something of a. a, a sort of a modern take on the divine comedy or, or the inferno so it's another small unambitious book <laughs> and uh, maybe my fourth or fifth book will complete the trilogy something to look forward to well the sun premieres on amc on april 8th at 9 p.m eastern philip meyer and kevin murphy thanks for sitting down with me thanks thank you thanks again to kevin murphy and philip meyer for joining me on the podcast the two-hour series premiere of The Sun airs this Saturday, April 8th at 8, 9 central on AMC. For more information, visit amc.com. You can visit Philip Meyer's website at philipmeyer.com. That's one L, two Ps. And follow Kevin Murphy on Twitter at at KevinMurphyHC. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.